This is one of the craziest, wildest elections you've ever seen in your lifetime. It's both remarkably different and extraordinarily important at the same time. How much has the game changed for somebody that wants to win a campaign? And who's done the best adjusting to today's game being played? Trump has a couple of unique advantages. Biden is in a totally different position. If your opponent has 92% negative press coverage, you don't have to do a whole lot to communicate what's wrong because the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC, and the rest of them, they'll all go do your job for you. He chose the perfect candidate where they had nothing to come after her. I mean, you couldn't say anything to her because of who she was. Do you think they're going to pack the court if they win? And if yes, what does that really mean to America? They're absolutely going to pack the court. And the reason's simple. Kamala Harris is a San Francisco radical. I think Nancy Pelosi's a radical. Uh, and I think Biden is so weak, so lacking in energy. What are your thoughts if Jeff Bezos now owns Washington Post and ends up buying and owning CNN? What happens to media? If you're on the left, you can do anything you want to and they'll protect you. If you're on the right, they can smear you and claim that it's good journalism. Do you think we're gonna find out next week or do you think it's gonna be delayed? Oh no, I think the margin will be big enough for now. My guest today is Newt Gingrich, the 50th Speaker of the House and a former 1995 Time Magazine Man of the Year. Newt, thank you so much for being a guest on Vitamin today. Well, I'm delighted to be with you. It should be very interesting. Yes, I've been looking forward to this. So, Newt, uh, Newt, would you agree this is one of the craziest, wildest elections you've ever seen in your lifetime? Oh, I think it's certainly the most unusual in my lifetime and probably the most uh, consequential since Abraham Lincoln's re-election in 1864. So it's, it's, a, it's both remarkably different and extraordinarily important at the same time. Now, you know, for me, just for somebody that's been following politics for now, I don't know, less than two decades, is it seems like every time you hear that word, it's the most consequential, it's the most consequential, and it's a form of creating urgency for a lot of the voters to get out there and want to vote. But there seems to be a real uh, feeling or energy of this being the most consequential. Why would you say that is? Well, you have a genuine populist outsider who has shaken the whole system up for four solid years. And you have a national establishment uh, which is going all out at every level from uh, Twitter and Facebook to corporate leadership uh, to the news media, which a report came out uh, yesterday that 92% of the Trump coverage in the campaign is negative. Uh, all that's going on simultaneously. And the difference in the direction of America from a Biden, Harris, uh, Schumer, Pelosi, left-wing radicalism to where Trump and Pence and McConnell and, and McCarthy would go is really unbelievably different. It's an amazing choice uh, that the American people will make next Tuesday. You, you've seen elections for a long time and they've, they've gone through different, uh, you know, uh, uh, conditions. So whether it was, you know, Nixon first going to uh, being on TV to debate with Kennedy, I'm like, oh my gosh, you gotta make sure you look good on TV when you're being, you know, when you're debating. It was radio prior to that and now you got social media how much has the game changed for somebody that wants to win a campaign? And, and who's, who's done the best adjusting to today's game being played versus what it was maybe 20, 30, 40, even 50 years ago? Well, I think Trump had a couple of unique advantages. Uh, he had done a popular commercial television series called The Apprentice. I think it was on for 13 years. Uh, he, had, uh, he owned at one point the Miss Universe contest till he was very used to reaching a mass market. He uh, really understood very quickly the power of Facebook and Twitter, and so developed the largest following 
uh, in both uh, of anybody. And as a result, he's been able to take on the entire national news media and basically fight him to, to a standstill because his, his reach has been as great as the collective reach of every single major uh, elite news media. It's a remarkable achievement. So I would say he really understands it. You know, Biden is in a totally different position. Biden basically is hoping that COVID will win the election for him. Uh, I noticed that you and I are talking on a day when Biden once again has no schedule, zero, hiding in the basement uh, in Wilmington. And, you know, but, but it's not irrational. I mean, his strategy is that if he stays out of the way and, and allows the country to be mad at Trump, that he'll get elected because they'll beat Trump. It's not, it's not a pro-Biden strategy. It's a hide and hope strategy. It could work. I mean, it's, it's possible, partly because, uh, you, you know, if your opponent has 92% negative press coverage, um, you don't have to do a whole lot to communicate what's wrong because the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC, and the rest of them, they'll all go do your job for you. And that's what's been going on. That is so true watching that be taking place. It's, it's actually very interesting. You got the whole team on your side when you're running and he does not. But do, do you think President Trump, I don't know if you've seen the documentary Trumpster, the story of his father and his grandfather. It's a pretty interesting documentary. And do you think Trump was somebody that behind closed doors, he himself had plans of saying, I'm going to one day be a president. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that one interview he did with Oprah Winfrey. Do you think so or no? And look, in the 80s, you know, Oprah asked him yeah. in the 80s, and he said, well, I might have to someday. Yeah. I think Trump saw himself as a potential president probably by 1987 or 1988. Uh, he looked at it very carefully. Uh, there's a great interview that he did um, uh, with, with Larry King that you can find on YouTube. And it sounds exactly like Trump today. It's a 30-year-old YouTube uh, uh, copy of Trump talking to Larry King about you know, we have bad trade deals. We're getting involved overseas. We don't need to. The bureaucracy doesn't work very well. Just goes right down the list. And he sounds, he's a much younger, thinner version, but he sure sounds yes. like he hasn't changed much in 30 or 40 years. Yeah. So your answer is yes, he has been planning that one day he would be running. Well, I, planning's too strong a word. I think he has been looking at it, thinking about it. Callista and I had breakfast with him in January of 2015 in Iowa. And it was clear that he was seriously thinking about it, but not yet up to a stage of planning. Not yet up to a stage of planning. And how do you think he's been doing? How do you think he's been doing for the last three and a half years? I saw your interview this morning with CBS. I thought it was very interesting what you said. Came out three hours ago, but how do you think he's been doing the last three and a half years? I think he is um, in the tradition of Andrew Jackson as a change agent. I think he's a very disruptive force. I think that is by design. Uh, he wants to uh, have a real impact. Uh, he, he didn't run for president, you know, just to be uh, in the Oval Office or to have Air Force One. He ran for president to make profound changes. And certainly if you look, for example, at the federal judges where we've just had the most extraordinary example uh, of uh, appointing the third uh, justice of the Supreme Court, that's a pretty amazing achievement. Uh, and he kept his word. I was, I was actually, Chris and I were actually in the meeting with him in the spring of 15, uh, when a number of people said to him, <clears throat> why don't you come up with a list of uh, 10 uh, conservative just judges that you would consider so people could understand that you're really seriously committed to 
changing the judiciary. And he thought it was a good idea. Uh, Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society played a key role in uh, putting the list together. It's a very, very solid list. And he's basically kept his word. And he was fortunate because uh, the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, understood the long-term historic implications of getting judges approved. And as a result, focused the Senate Republicans on confirmation of judges as their number one goal and has had extraordinary impact. I mean, I think there are 340 or 350 federal judges that have been approved, not counting the sort of uh, secondary judges, but the actual, the main district judges, appeals court and Supreme Court. And the Trump legacy in the courts will be there for two generations. I mean, if you look at it, Justice Barrett is, I think, 48 years old. Mm -hmm. She could easily serve past 2060. That's how long the reach of the Trump presidency will be. That's unbelievable to have it 6-3. Is he the uh, the last president that had three Supreme Court justices? Is, is it Reagan? Is it the last time that happened was three? It was three, and I, I can't remember whether I thought it was Nixon, but it, it, it's been a while. Been a while. Uh, this This is the first time you've had a clear conservative majority on the court since 1935-36. Wow. Wow. Would you put that as his top accomplishment? Would you put that at the top or would you put Israel, would you put a couple things above that? Well, I think in terms of long-term history, you have to rate that as the top one because when you move the courts back to a constitutional interpretation of the law and you put judges in who think that they are not there to be independent interpreters of their own version. You know, the, the, the Supreme Court had slid to a point where it was a permanent constitutional convention. And if you could get five judges, you could rewrite anything you wanted to. Now you've got a group of judges who actually think that the Constitution is a living document created by the founders, agreed to by the people of the United States, and that you have to uh, interpret within the framework of the Constitution. Uh, and I thought that Justice Barris' description uh, at the White House when she was sworn in, uh, and she described the difference between a politician who has a duty to think about policy and, and changing policy, and a judge who has a duty not to think about policy, but to think about interpreting the law that the politicians have written. And I thought she did a very eloquent job of distinguishing. Uh, the two missions and the two roles. And so I give her a lot of credit. Yeah, she the, the way she handled herself those few days, I mean, it was Teflon. You couldn't get anything on her. It wasn't like Teflon, like she's good at being Teflon. She was just Teflon being herself. She wasn't trying to be Teflon. But, you know, great, of It's a great cartoon. Remember when she, she holds up her notepad and it's blank? Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a cartoon where somebody wrote on the card, on, on the note card, and has her holding a note card that says, I have seven children. I'm used to answering dumb questions. <laughs> I saw a lot of memes, but I didn't see that one. That's hilarious. Yeah, she. By the way, isn't she the first one, first woman ever to have children that are still going to school that she's going to be sitting on the Supreme Court justice? I mean, she's the first one, I believe, that's doing that. She is the first one. Uh, she's. I, look, there are a lot of things that are interesting about Trump's decision. She is the only person on the court who didn't go to Harvard or Yale. Uh, she is clearly a representative of the Midwest. As she pointed out, 
as a Notre Dame graduate, she probably can educate the others a little bit about football. Um, she uh, has, I think, a background both in terms of her faith and the degree to which uh, her life has been defined by family and faith in a way that I think for a lot of more traditional women makes her a role model uh, that they can really look up to. She hasn't given up anything, uh, unlike the, the, the liberal feminist version. You know, I mean, she's had a great career. She is a serious intellectual. Uh, she is now in the highest court in the land. She has a great family. Uh, they have shown great compassion. Uh, and uh, there's just a lot to, to the uh, Amy Coney Barrett story that I think speaks well. And it speaks well of Donald Trump. Uh, I think that the fact that he would pick this woman, um, and he had several other choices. And uh, Mitch McConnell apparently went to him as a Midwesterner from Kentucky and said, you know, uh, the easiest person for me to get to unify the Senate Republicans is, is Judge Barrett because uh, she's very highly respected. She's very solid. Uh, and you know, don't go picking somebody who's a bigger risk because I've got a narrow margin here. Uh, I think it turned out that it was a home run. It almost seemed like he chose the perfect candidate where they had nothing to come after her. I mean, Kavanaugh, you could have brought him from so many different angles. You couldn't say anything to her because of who she was. And by the way, she was number one in her class at Notre Dame. I mean, she was somebody that was top-notch at what she was doing. But going back to this whole 6-3 score, you know, this is not good whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether the other side's got 6-3 or you got 6-3. The topic of court packing came up in the VP debate where Mike Pence cornered Kamala Harris. You probably saw this. Where he's like, so are you guys going to be packing a court? Are you guys going to be packing a court? And Kamala did her smile where she's looking at the moderator, hoping to change the topic. And then he finally says, I hope everybody realizes she did not answer the question. And then he, she said, you want me to answer the question? I'll answer the question. You know, diversity is the angle she went. And you saw Biden's been trying to answer it in a 60 minutes question. Do you think they're going to pack the court if they win? And if yes, what does that really mean to America? Well, look, I, I think if they get a big enough majority in the Senate and the House, uh, they're absolutely going to pack the court. And the reason is simple. How do you go to your left-wing activists and say to them, yes, it's true, we have to put up with a Trump court for the next 30 or 40 years, but after all, uh, that's the game. Uh, because the activists are going to say, no, no, there's an alternative game. Now, when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt tried to do this in 1937, when he was very frustrated uh, with the conservative court, uh, the whole country rebelled. I mean, he, he was at this peak of popularity. He had just gotten reelected carrying all the two states. Uh, and it just crashed and burned. Uh, he, he, was, he was very shocked at how rapidly his popularity collapsed when people decided he's going to try to do something that they saw as a threat to the Constitution. So, you, you know, I think they will absolutely try to pack the court. But I, I believe the reason this is such a consequential election is that I really do think that Kamala Harris is a San Francisco radical. I think Nancy Pelosi is a San Francisco radical. I think that Schumer is going to run scared because AOC is potentially going to run against him in the primary in 2022. Uh, and I think Biden is so weak, uh, so lacking in energy, and in some ways so much uh, no longer in touch with reality that I think uh, he's, he's clearly not going to be able to control his own administration. It's going to be dominated, I think, by Harris and Pelosi. Newt, your, your entire life they've been following politics. When did you start following politics? How old were you? Uh, what year was it when you started following politics? Well, I mean, I, I had an uncle who'd been very active as a Republican precinct worker in Pennsylvania. So 
my my oldest memory is watching the convention on television in 1956 with Eisenhower. But I really got involved because my dad was a career soldier and we were stationed in Orléans, France. And he took us uh, in the spring of 58 to the battlefield of Verdun, which is the largest battle in the Western Front in World War I. About uh, 600,000 men, French and Germans were killed in a nine month period. And they have a huge building called the Ossuary that has the bones of about 100,000 of them that had been blown apart uh, and couldn't be identified. Uh, we spent three days there touring the battlefield during the day and staying with a friend of my father's who had been um, drafted, sent to the Philippines, served on the Bataan Death March, and spent three and a half years in a Japanese prison camp, which ruined his health. So the army gave him a pretty soft job that he could work at until retirement. So we spent all that time looking at the cost of, of defeat and the cost of war. Then the French paratroopers came back from Algeria and killed, literally killed the French Fourth Republic and brought uh, General de Gaulle back and he founded the Fifth Republic, which still exists today. It's the longest serving non-royalty government in the history of, uh, of France. Then we moved in June, early July to Stuttgart, which was the Seventh Army headquarters in Germany and uh, arrived the week that there was the first Berlin crisis and the U.S. Army had gone into uh, Lebanon with nuclear weapons offshore. So with all that stuff going on, I was going to be either a vertebrate paleontologist or a zoo director. And um, I spent all summer thinking and praying about it and decided that um, it was my job to basically do three things. Figure out what we have to do to survive. Figure out how to explain it so the American people would give us permission and then figure out how you would implement it once you had permission. And I've, since uh, August of 1958, uh, that's what I've been doing. So I guess 62 years. August of 1958. So that leads me to my question. Who have been the worst presidential candidates, both on the left and the right? If you were to say the worst candidates that either party's put up as a front runner, who would you say those have been in the last 62 years? Well, I think the, the two who had the most impossible job were Barry Goldwater, who was both too far to the right and didn't understand how to try to bring his party together. Uh, and uh, George McGovern, who uh, really was the first modern radical nominee and who felt that he had to uh, focus on the radical wing of his party. Uh, both of them lost disastrously. Uh, and both of them, uh, I think, left behind in, in McGovern's case, it's the beginning of the radical movement in the Democratic Party. In Goldwater's case, it leads directly to Reagan and the rise of modern conservatism. But I would say as candidates, uh, those were the two who had the hardest time. Where would you put Biden as? Who? Where would you put Biden, I, Joe Biden as? Biden is, is unique. I mean, Biden is a guy, first of all, you have to give him some credit. He's the nominee. He outlasted everybody else. Uh, second, they have a very clear strategy. Uh, if, if this election is about Trump, they believe they will win. If this election is a choice between Trump and Biden, they think they will lose. So their job is to hide like a bunny in, 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 a, in the basement and hope that the country doesn't notice them. And the problem is every time he comes out, he says something goofy yeah. uh, and, and uh, loses ground. So, uh, you know, I, I personally think as of today, he's going to lose. When he loses, the left is going to go crazy. Uh, so it's going to be just like Philadelphia has been the last couple of nights. Uh, and you're going to see days of rage uh, because 
they've been told over and over again by totally inaccurate polls uh, that Biden's way ahead. Well, Biden's not way ahead. Uh, Biden, at best, this is a very close race from the standpoint of the Democrats. And at worst, it's going to turn out to be a Republican sweep. And nobody's factoring that in because they don't know how to they don't know how to ask the right questions. And they, don't, they have learned nothing from how wrong they were in 2016. Remember, on election day in 2016, the New York Times said there was an 85% likelihood that Hillary Clinton would win on election day. Yeah. So the, these people have learned nothing. And uh, we'll find out next week whether I'm right or they're right. Do, do you think we're going to find out next week or do you think it's going to be delayed? Oh, no, I think the margin will be big enough. We'll know. Oh, and we'll know think, next week. Okay. I think it's going to beat him badly enough. That you'll you'll know wow. the Okay, that's that's good to know. I got three topics to get into hopefully before we wrap up. Number one, you said 92% of coverage of Trump is negative on TV. Jeff Bezos just came out saying he's planning on buying CNN. What are your thoughts if Jeff Bezos now owns Washington Post and ends up buying and owning CNN? What happens to media? I don't know. CNN has been so badly uh, left wing. Zucker's done such a terribly one-sided hatchet job. Um that it probably can't get a whole lot worse without losing all of its uh, viewers. Uh, so it depends on what Bezos wants to do. I've, I've been very disappointed that Bezos has not imposed more order on the Washington Post. I mean, the Washington Post used to be a serious newspaper. Right now, it's a left-wing propaganda rag, and that's really tragic. If, you know, if you'd had the scale of scandal that the Biden family has uh, in the 1970s, imagine when when Woodward and Bernstein went to see Bradley. The, managing editor and said, you know, we want to dig into this Watergate thing. And he said, nah, skip it. Let's not bother Nixon. Uh, it's inconceivable. Yet we have all sorts of evidence, eyewitnesses, uh, laptop computer data that um, the Biden family, not Hunter Biden, the Biden family has been engaged in absolute corruption. Uh, and the New York Times, the Washington Post, all these places, CNN, uh, all of them have hidden it because they're trying to protect the bunny in the basement. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, it'll be interesting. I'm very sad that Bezos has not insisted on some level of uh, professionalism at the Washington Post. So, so then my question goes to Fox, because if I'll, I'll turn your attention to this one part of an interview you did on Fox a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I think with Harrison, uh, Harris Faulkner, I want to get your reaction on this. This is you on Fox News on September 9th, I believe. Progressive district attorneys are anti-police, pro-criminal, and overwhelmingly elected with George Soros' money, and they're a major cause of the violence we're seeing because they keep putting the violent criminals back on the street. I'm not sure we need to bring George get Soros into this. <laughs> I was going to say you get the last word, he Speaker. <laughs> he, he, he paid for it. I mean, why can't we discuss the fact that millions no, of he dollars? Spent I, I agree with Melissa. George Soros doesn't need to be a part of this conversation. Okay. So it's verboten. All right, we're good. I mean, that's got to be one of the most uncomfortable moments of TV, whether it's Fox or, and you're seeing Murdoch's sons uh, recently giving uh, money to the Democratic Party. So the reason why I'm saying this is. If Fox goes left and an interview like that happens, I want to get your reaction on that period. But if Fox goes left, what's the only media channel that's left for the right to, you know, give their own side of the argument? Well, I mean, first of all, what you saw was a mistake. On, and then Fox had 
no problem with talking about Soros. And in fact, the next day, um, uh, she, she apologized uh, for uh, the way it was mishandled. And what had happened was we were- Who's we she, were Harris? Her, Harris or the lady in the yellow? Harris, uh, okay, Harris, got it. No, no, look, the other woman is a professional Democrat and was doing her job, which is to clutter it up and, and try to not let us score points against Democrats. Uh, Harris, I think, because we were separated, it was all virtual. I was, I think, actually in Rome at the time. Uh, and so uh, Harris was a half step back uh, in, in sort of sorting it out because it, was, it wasn't, wasn't like we were on the same couch. Uh, the next day I did her show and she openly apologized and said, look, we, we would never cut you. Off. You know, we love having you on, et cetera. So I think it was actually a technical mistake. Now, having said that, if at some point Fox decides to become a left-wing establishment channel, uh, there will be three or four channels, uh, probably starting with Newsmax, but there will be three or four different channels competing to replace Fox. I don't think the Fox audience is going to go with Fox if it becomes a left-wing channel. Nor, nor by the way, when I look at their lineup, uh, I, mean, I, I don't, I don't think you know that 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 uh, Tucker or Sean or or Laura are about to become moderates. So they they they, they would have a long way to go. And I, I do Fox and Friends all the time, uh, and I I feel I very comfortable doing all these shows. And generally speaking. Uh, they're probably not quite as far to the right as they were under Ailes, uh, but they're still far and away uh, the most effective conservative vehicle in the country. Well, Tucker's coming up for renewal of a contract. If he was an athlete, he's underpaid because he's getting $6 million and Hannity's getting twenty five, and he just passed him up on viewership. I know your friends, you probably can't say anything about it, but did you watch Tucker yesterday with uh, Tony Bublinski, the guest he had on? No, I've seen take outtakes from it, but I, haven't, I didn't watch the whole show. What, what's your reaction with the story of Tony coming out with the partnership of Hunter? I know you went into it briefly earlier when I was asking you about Bezos and CNN, but w what are your thoughts about it? And why is it that no one's covering it? It's like almost saying, I heard somebody say the other day, I think it was on 60 Minutes or one of the hosts said, well, we won't cover it because everything is speculation, nothing. We don't cover stories like this if, it's, if it isn't 100%. What are your thoughts about what we're seeing with Tony and uh, Hunter Biden? Well, first, that comment's a lie. They spent three and a half years covering a Russian story about Trump that turned out to be totally false. Uh, both the New York Times and the Washington Post got Pulitzer Prizes for covering lies, which uh, they never to return the prizes, but the, their entire prize was based on lies. So if you're on the left, you can do anything you want to and they'll protect you. If you're on the right, they can smear you and claim that it's good journalism. Uh, let's, let's just start with, with, with honesty. Um, Second, I, I just did a 30-minute video, uh, which is available at Gingrich 360, uh, on the, the Biden family corruption. And uh, I think I outline it with quotes and with video and lay the whole thing out. It's much more than Hunter. It's, it's, a, it's a family business. It's his two uncles. It's his father. Uh, and they were just out going around the planet scooping up money. Uh, clearly a blatant uh, violation of public trust. Uh, and and, uh, and it's an astonishing story. Well, it involves hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, this is not some small, you know, jaywalking problem. Um, I, I have seen excerpts from Boblinski. Uh, you know, he was a naval officer. He has a good reputation. We have some mutual friends who think very highly of him. Uh, but again, you have, what you have is the entire establishment, uh, Twitter, Facebook, um, 
all the major media are like they're like they're like a Greek phalanx. They're all lined up to protect Biden. And so they, they want to make sure that the bunny in the basement is safe while they go and attack the bear. Uh, and that's what this race is all about. Do you think the world's dangerous and we need a bear? In which case, Donald Trump's a pretty good candidate. Or do you think that Donald Trump is the problem and we could really survive as a country with a bunny rabbit as our president, as our president, which I think is just laughable, impossible. And, and I'm very interested to see how people vote next week, because I think the yeah. more we watch Biden, you know, things like referring to uh, Kamala Harris's wife, which he did yesterday, or the day before referring twice to George when he meant Donald Trump, or announcing he was running for the Senate three or four days ago. I mean, every, the more you watch Biden, the more you know, uh, this is not a guy who is really ready for prime time. Last question for you is with uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. She was on Wolf Bilzer. I'm, I'm sure you saw that interview she had, which Wolf pushed her on a little bit, saying, how come you're not calling Trump? And she said, I don't call Trump. I'm not going to call Trump. I talk to his people. There's no way I'm going to call Trump. Like, she was offended that Wolf asked about calling Trump. You were Speaker of the House before at a time where you were a disruptor. I mean, if people go back and study what you did, you would be categorized as a disruptor. You were able to do something that hadn't been done for a long time when it was controlled by the other side. What was your relationship like with the president? And as a speaker of the house, are you supposed to pick up the phone and call him and say, let's get a deal done? Look, you, you can't compare the two. Um, Bill Clinton and I were both sort of natural graduate students. Uh, we like sitting around talking about ideas. Occasionally, he'd call and I'd go down and have a drink with him late at night, and we'd chat very much like Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. Reagan yeah. uh, we, we negotiated the only balanced budgets in your lifetime, and we did it by sitting in a room for 35 days. Now, that's a totally different world. Uh, my advice, if Trump does get reelected, is going to be pick the 50 or 60 Democrats that are most vulnerable. Ignore Pelosi totally and build a Trump wing of the Democratic Party and just beat her on the floor. I think that's the only practical way to do it. That's the only practical way to do it against Pelosi. Yeah, because she's a radical. She's not going to agree to anything. Wow. Okay. Final thoughts. Next week, you're saying landslide victory for Trump? Yeah, I think so. I think we, we, we increase our number of seats in the Senate. John James wins in Michigan. We pick up the seat in Alabama. Uh, we have an outside but real shot in New Mexico. Um, our candidates are all going to do much better than people think uh, the incumbents in running for re-election. Uh, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. And I think Trump will, pe people need to remember Trump had 300 and some electoral votes. Uh, and I think he's likely to be uh, in that range again, and maybe higher. Uh, I think he's now carrying North Carolina. He's carrying Florida. He's carrying Iowa. He's carrying Arizona. Uh, I actually think he's ahead in Pennsylvania. I've seen three polls that I trust that show him up in Pennsylvania. Very important to know what poll you're looking at. Most of these pu public polls are pure junk. Uh, they don't know what they're doing. They don't poll correctly. They don't ask the right questions and they don't reach the right people. So, uh, and I think that the fracking, get rid of uh, fossil fuel Oil, yeah. by Biden are just devastating. Uh, and particularly in states like Pennsylvania and Texas and New Mexico. Which polls do you trust? You said it's important you trust uh, the right poll. I, I trust, uh, the poll I trust the most is Trafalgar, uh, which is, uh, was the most accurate in 16 and most accurate in 18. And to give an example of how po bad polls can be, 
Quinnipiac, which is a very respectable establishment poll, had both the Republican Senate and governor candidates in, in Florida losing by seven points the day before the election. They both won the election. Got it. That's very good All to right. know. Newt, thank you so much for being a guest on by Tim. Appreciate your time. Glad to do it. Take care. Bye-bye. So they say Newt Gingrich is one of the smartest men in politics the last 30, 40 years because he studied this game. He's been in the game. He knows the people. And he's got different perspectives he can give you. I'm curious to know what you took away from the interview. Comment below. I want to hear your thoughts. And then if you watch this interview and you enjoyed it, there's another interview I did a few weeks ago with Dinesh D'Souza on his new documentary. If you've not watched it, click over here to watch that uh, documentary interview that we did together. And if you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.